Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So I'm so excited that you're here talking about Christina Pazan. Um, she's amazing and I'm just thrilled to have you here. So can you introduce her to those of to those of us who might not be so familiar with her? Sure, no problem. So Christine de Pizan was a writer in the late 14th century, early 15th century in France. And she was a professional writer, which was kind of unheard of for women at the time. So she actually supported herself and her kids through writing. And she wrote uh, just over 20, 20 works, which is quite a lot at the time from from the time when she was widowed until things got too hot in Paris and she kind of retreated to, to an abbey for a while. So yeah, she was, she was writing right in the middle of the Hundred Years' War when things were crazy in France. And, uh, and yeah, she was, she was writing for the court. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, so can you tell me about how she became a writer? Because like you said, that's so unusual. Um, even I think for men at this period to just suddenly say, oh, I'm gonna be a writer but especially for a woman to say that and like how she kind of, how that, how that came about for her. Yeah, sure. So, um, so yeah, I think unless you were trained up in the church, it was kind of a strange thing to say you're going to be a writer. So Christine was, was very unusual in that she, she came over to France with her father. Her father was, um, was a doctor and an astronomer at the court of Charles V. And so her father let her learn some stuff, taught her some stuff, even though her mother was not into that, didn't think girls needed to know that. But Christine loved to learn, uh, even though she says that she was more interested in playing at the time. <laughs> but so she, she, she grew up in the, the French court and she, their family was very pretty wealthy because of her father's position as an advisor to Charles V. Um, so when Christine was 15, she got a bunch of marriage proposals, but she accepted one that was from a court clerk named Etienne de Castel. And so she married him and it was a love match and he was already established uh, at the court as well. So he was, he was a clerk and her father was in the court too. Um, and then Charles V died and his son came into power as a child. And Charles VI was, all sorts of a nightmare when it comes to a ruler because he had a lot of mental health difficulties and it was a very unstable time. And so Christine's father um, lost his position or he was very reduced in his position so they didn't have much money. And then her father died 
And it was just Etienne taking care of the whole family. So Christine, their three kids, and Christine's mom and a niece. Um, and then Etienne went away with the king and he died. So Christine was 25 years old and her husband was dead, her father was dead. She had to take care of everyone by herself. And so the only thing she really knew how to do was to write. So she's this 25 year old widow and she's dealing with like all of her husband's financial accounts. The only criticism she has of him ever is that he didn't tell her enough about their finances. So she's in court and she's trying to get people to sponsor her and to write. And so she starts to write ballads and she writes a hundred ballads and people start to like this. And then she starts to write advice books and then people start to notice. And eventually she's so well known that Charles V's brother, Philip of Burgundy, actually asked Christine to write his brother, the King's official biography. So she's really made it at that point and she's starting to, to have commissions. She's starting to actually make money off writing. So she wouldn't have done it if she hadn't been a widow. She would have been established as a wife, which she was quite happy to do. But she said when Etienne died, she, she transformed. She metamorphosized, more metamorphosized and she called herself a man after that. Uh, in a poem that she wrote about that transformation. I think it's called the Book of Fortune's Transformation. So she was forced into it, but she was really well suited to it as well. And did she ever have to um, pretend that she was a man? I'm thinking about later on with in French, the famous story about like George Sand and, and, you know, in the 19th century, people, women writing as men. Did she ever have to do anything like that? Or was she? No, she would never have been able to get away with it because she was too well known. Okay. <laughs> so and she was also pretty fierce and that I don't think she would have wanted to take on someone's name but she was really she was really trying to build this up for herself for her family so yeah she wouldn't have been able to get away with writing as a man yeah yeah um, but the, she says that the, it was the novelty of her writing as a woman that made her as successful as she was mm. which is kind of being a little bit too modest but there's something there and that there were no one else was doing it time but uh yeah she she didn't actually become a man in any sense of the word <laughs> okay okay and so she was writing um right around the time of the start of the printing press right um and i'm wondering how that influenced if you can say anything about how that influenced how her writing was spread i guess or yeah so she, she died before the printing press. She died probably around 1430 because the last thing she wrote was about Joan of Arc. Okay. She was very, very excited about Joan of Arc. Um, she probably didn't see the end of that story. Right. <laughs> good, good for Christine. So the printing press was about 50 years later. Um, but then her work was one of the early things that was put into print. William Caxton printed a couple of the things that she wrote. Um, they were put into English translation and they were disseminated as printed texts um, in England, we know, um, also elsewhere in, in France as well. But she was writing in, in a time of manuscripts and this is really interesting because as you can see from the shirt, she's herself, she, she makes sure that there's pictures of herself in these books and she really provides how they were made, which is really kind of unusual as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's really interesting. So she was really hands-on with the whole process, huh? Yeah, she was really, she was really hands-on. Um, and fair enough, because this was, this was all she had 
to work with. So, so yes. yeah, so one thing that you might find interesting, because we're talking a little bit about the tutors, um, is that her book, The City of Ladies, um, which we could get into a little bit, um, explain what it is in a second, but The City of Ladies is one book that was translated into English and put into print around 1521, which was a time when some people have speculated that it might have been to kind of bolster um, Mary's claim to the throne, because at that time, we know that Henry didn't have any sons. Right. So, Stephanie Downs, I think, was saying this might be might have been to bolster Mary. And we know that um, Susan Bell found that in an inventory of Henry VIII's possessions, there were six panels of tapestry of the City of Ladies, which was found in Elizabeth's garden room. So the tutors knew about this book because there's no other book called The City of Ladies. <laughs> and so there were people that, that were reading it. Um, we know that the tutors as well could speak French at least. Anne Boleyn for sure. And so she was probably exposed to this book either in English or French. So it's it's weird that, that Henry had that tapestry, but it's really awesome that it was in Elizabeth's possession. So Yeah. Now see that's interesting because I, I had kind of put in the questions I wanted to ask you about Margaret of Austria, and she was the one who Anne Boleyn was at her court, and she was this um really humanist renaissance while well, she was regent for a while and, and ruled in her own right. And um, that's who Anne was at her court. And, um, and she sponsored a lot of musicians and, and all of that kind of stuff. And I just, I imagine Anne reading this book and, and, you know, being exposed to her work very early on when she was 12 or 13 years old and the impression yeah. that it made on her. And that's interesting yeah. to think that even in 1521, when Anne was still not not anything yet to that. So it, it wasn't just because of Anne that her work was, was uh, became known in England. Right, and we, I, I don't know a lot about Margaret of Austria, as I told you, but um, I did quickly look her up and, and we do know that some of Christine's works were owned by her. So there is a very good chance that Anne would have been exposed to Christine, if not the City of Ladies. Yeah. So we'll say the City of Ladies, because I don't think we've explained that yet. Right, yeah, tell me about the City of Ladies. So the Book of the City of Ladies kind of came out of this argument that Christine had, this intellectual argument about this older poem called The Romance of the Rose. And The Romance of the Rose uh, started out as just kind of this nice poem about looking for love. And then uh, the author who's writing that died and someone else took it over and it became a very misogynist okay. book. And so around the time that Christine was writing, people were like, this book is great. It's such a great piece of literature. And she couldn't stand that. So she, she wrote a bunch of letters saying, this book is terrible. Not only is it like dirty, but it's also misogynist, it's terrible. Um, so she wrote this book called The City of Ladies where it's this dream sort of vision where Christine is sitting in her study and she's reading about um, other men's, well, men's ideas of women. And she starts to think to herself, like all these very learned men have said women are terrible. It must be true. And then she's, she's visited by these three apparitions, Lady Justice, Lady Rectitude, and Lady Reason. And they say to her, Christine, like, this is nonsense. Women are fantastic, and let us show you how they're fantastic. So the three, the three apparitions, they, they build a city of arguments that are about how women are fantastic. 
and this city is where women can intellectually live and defend themselves against these arguments that men make. So the City of Ladies is all about examples from uh, the Bible and from mythology and from different arguments that men have made over the years that really say women are fantastic. So she's got Amazons in there and she's got biblical ladies. And it's just, it's amazing because um, all of the arguments that are routinely set up against women in the Middle Ages and now, she sets them up and she knocks them down. And they're just, it's just kind of, it's a revolutionary book. Um, and when I came across it, I was absolutely floored. I just had never read anything like this and know anything about it. We were always told that, you know, women just kind of sat down and were quiet at this time, which is mm. not true at all. But then here is Christina, she's put in writing and nobody, nobody actually persecutes her. Like we have this idea of the Middle Ages where if you put forth an idea that's controversial, people are just going to take you down, burn you at the stake. Um, but Christine was was well known and the book of ladies city of ladies was well read and it was being transmitted and transmitted and transmitted now that said the last copy in English of it was in 1521 until the 80s okay. <laughs> like, like the 1980s yeah. Yeah. and so you know men were not huge fans of this but, yeah. but at the same time there were a lot of intellectuals that were reading it and, uh, and sharing it. And so the City of Ladies uh, is the one that came out in 1521, possibly in support of Mary, we don't know for sure. Um, so it could easily have been one that, that Anne Boleyn was exposed to. And it is the source of the tapestries that I was just talking about that were found in, in Henry VIII's inventory. So it's funny because I don't imagine Henry being a big fan of this book, <laughs> but lots of the very, very strong women in the Tudor court probably would have heard of it if not read it so yeah. yeah and it's interesting because this period in the 16th century in Europe had all of these powerful queens regnant or, or regents so it's interesting to think that they might have all been you know reading some of this and being influenced by it throughout Europe as well yeah yeah, yeah. because her there are copies of this that exist and like I was saying to you it was in manuscript form, which meant people were really like writing it out, mm -hmm. which meant that they thought it was important enough to put that effort in. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it, it speaks to how how powerful her ideas were and how well spread. And it's funny, she was she was French in the middle of the Hundred Years War, but um, she had come to the attention of Henry the Fourth, who she was not a really big fan of. She had a son named Jean and he had been taken over to England with the Earl of Salisbury as part of Richard II's court in 1397. So if you know this period of history, 1397 is going to set off some alarm bells, right? So he came over with the Earl of Salisbury and then Richard was overthrown two years later. So her son is 15, now at the court of Henry IV, and Henry says, Christine, you're amazing. I've read your books. Why don't you come over and be my court poet? And Christine's thinking, like, this is a usurper. Like, there's no way I'll do it. But she told him she would until he gave her her son back. And then she was like, nope, I'm staying here. Forget it. So he was well-known and respected enough that Henry V wanted her, Henry, sorry, Henry IV wanted her to come to England. But she was not having it. 
Mm. Yeah, she was super well known. Um, and like I said, this is very unusual, but yeah. amazing. Like you, you and your blog post called her a badass, and it's definitely, it's definitely apt. I think she is. She's a total badass. Um, I love it. So, how can you? Can we just backtrack a little bit? And like you say that there's this whole idea that women were just kind of subservient at this time. And can you talk to me a little bit about? Um, I know you're a little bit earlier than the Tudor period, but certainly it influenced the Tudors, and we see it kind of extend even more. Just how women in real life were seen at this time. Because it always blows me away, even in the Tudor period, how women joined guilds. And you know, there's, there's all this stuff. They had jobs, and, and they were doing things. And there's this whole myth that women just stayed at home and pumped out babies. And it wasn't. They lived very vibrant lives and very creative lives and were entrepreneurs and everything like that. And so can you tell me a little bit about how the role of women and uh, in England and yeah, I'll stop talking and let you talk now. Sure. Okay. So, um, so when you when you think about um, where our ideas of what women were doing comes from, it comes from clerics and people who were trained in the church, right? And the church was Catholic Church at the time before Henry. Um, and this is this is a time when it was very much um, the thinkers, the theological thinkers at the time thought that women should be subservient. And so that was what they wrote about how they should be. This is what they should be like. But if you read anything outside of these intellectual texts, you read medieval plays or you read the Fabio or you read court documents, you'll see that women are everywhere and they're talking back and they're going to court and they're, they're taking over businesses that they had to. I mean, Christine writes a lot of things for, for widows because she knows what it's like. And she had to fight for her, um, well, basically her, her debts that were her husband's in court for 14 years. And so, you know, if you look outside of what women should be like, you can actually see the real ones who were in professions. Now they weren't in guilds very much because they weren't supposed to be, but often they were in the back of the shop that they were doing a lot of the work, but not getting a lot of the credit, which is just pretty familiar for that period. But yeah, women were doing all sorts of things, but we don't really see them. And so it's, it's kind of interesting to, to read Christine's work because she'll pull them out to the front. For example, she, after the City of Ladies, she, it was a bestseller. And so she wrote kind of a sequel called Book of the Three Virtues, where these three, Lady Rectitude, Lady uh, Justice, and Lady Reason come back and they tell her, well, here's what you can do as a woman of this time. Mm. And so Christine gives advice or in through these apparitions gives advice as to how you should live and so she gives advice for how a princess should live which is basically support your husband and and help him and be a kind of a moderator um, help him to be wise uh, for for women that are lower ranks she's she's saying do your best to find out what the accounts are <laughs> <laughs> what the money is like in your house because you might need to know this later really be familiar with the business things like that but she even goes as far as to speak to prostitutes and say like, you don't you don't have to put on the red light <laughs> there are things that you can do and she explains you could be a laundress or you could be a servant or you could do these things and so you can kind of reading christine's work even see where were the women they were doing all these things that they're, they're not really mentioned as being done in the sermons because the sermons were very much about like 
you stay home and take care of things, but it's not really kind of explained what they do necessarily. Mm-hmm. So yeah, women are busy at this time and don't let anyone tell you that they were always quiet and not not yeah. giving their opinion because they were. In fact, that is that is the source of many of the the stories, folk tales and stuff is that women are being too mouthy because mm-hmm. they just, they have opinions, they're human beings. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so Christine, her her work then starts to spread. And was there any? You said Paris got too hot for her. What? What was yes. there any sort of adverse reaction to her or, or people who? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't in reaction to her at all. Um, what was happening in France at that time was because Charles the Sixth was was ill. He was frequently absent from from being king. And so there were lots of people that would take his place and fight over the regency. And so there's that. And then there was also kind of a blood feud that was happening between the house of Burgundy and the house of Orléans. And so those guys were fighting all the time and they were shifting alliances with the English as well, because the English were still a threat. And so around 1418 is when she kind of disappears. And that's because um, the Burgundians have taken over Paris. And it's, they were aligned with Henry V, the English king at that time. And it was not the time for a French patriot to be in Paris, especially one that was kind of aligned with, with the Dauphin and stuff. So she, it was not the right place for her to be politically. And we think that she probably retired to a convent uh, where her daughter was. So Christine had three children, a daughter and two sons. Uh, one of her sons died. And so her, her daughter was a nun, a Dominican nun at Poissy. And then Jean de Castel, we know he was, he was in England for a while. He died when he was 25. So she probably went to stay at Poissy with her daughter. And it was just a political thing. It had nothing to do with this. I see. Okay. And this is, like you said, this is the time of like Joan of Arc and Agincourt in a couple of years before then. So um, it, at this point, it looks as if the English are, are still really a, a threat then at that point. And we don't, uh, yeah. Yeah. At that time, the English are kind of ascendant, mm-hmm. which the tide turns, you know, 10 years later. But Christine wrote about Agincourt and just what a devastating time that was for the French aristocracy. Um, she wrote kind of a letter of consolation to another noble woman. But uh, yeah, so at that time, Charles had Charles the Sixth had had to acknowledge Henry V as being in charge. Yeah. And so you know, she had to she had to get out of Paris. Mm-hmm. And then ten years later, just over ten years later, Joan of Arc came and things were looking good for the yeah. French for the first time. And so Christine kind of took up her pen for the first time in a decade and mm-hmm. wrote this kind of song of praise to to Joan, not knowing what was around the corner. But yeah, when she disappeared, it was a bad time for the French. Yeah, okay. I see, I see. <laughs> yeah, and then that's just, of course, for people who aren't familiar with the timeline, then then that Henry V then becomes the, 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 this is like getting into the Wars of the Roses, well, the very early beginnings. Can you walk me through a little bit of the English timeline then, since this is a Tudor-themed. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Like, oh my gosh, this is the end of my period. Let, let me just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, so we have Henry V, the conqueror, and then it's his son then who 
Yeah. And it was his, how is that related? Because Henry VI's grandfather was the one who had some mental health issues, right? And that's Charles or? Charles the Sixth. yeah. Yeah. So what happened was Henry V married Charles's daughter. Mm. Um, but your name's, is, oh my God, I might have got that wrong. Yeah. Um, but anyway, marries Charles's daughter. Yeah. And so their son, Henry VI, inherits some of these difficulties. And, you know, it's one of those things where people are not exactly sure what the difficulty was. Yeah. Um, but so Henry VI had a lot of times where he was, he was fine, and then he had times where he was not. And so people started to get restless about this, and then there was civil war over it. Maybe someone else should be king. Um, and so that's when Edward IV takes over. Yeah. And so eventually Edward has Henry killed. Yeah. Um, and after Edward um, comes his son, his son were the princes in the tower, um, and they're, they're killed, and then his brother Richard III takes over. You know, Richard III was defeated by the first Tudor. Tudor. Yep, and he yeah. married Elizabeth and brought the two houses together, the white and the red. So um, just thinking about the relationship with England at this period too. So it's, you know, I, sometimes there's a stereotype that people just stayed on their little, on their little surf, serfdom, their little fief, their little area, right? And they never went anywhere. And I just wonder like, what, how did the French people and the English people interact? Of course there was war. <laughs> so, but was there like, was there trading relationships? Like how, how did English, did English people ever visit France? Did they go to the beaches? <laughs> but they went on pilgrimages and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about other than the war, which of course the war is a major part of it, but what the relationship would have been like between ordinary people at that time period? Sure. There's a huge, there's a huge relationship between England and France. And this goes back to the Normans, the Normans taking over England. Um, for a lot of the medieval period, much of what is modern France was owned by the English. Mm -hmm. I mean, Eleanor of Aquitaine brought a whole bunch of that over when she married Henry II. And so they just, they owned a lot of it. It was lost and then it was gained and lost and gained. And so that's kind of where the Hundred Years' War starts, isn't it? Is certain claims to the throne that they had and, and land. Yeah. Them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so there were relatives all over the place from this back and forth thing there's marriages there were people who were related and so they're going back and forth to visit each other there's trade um like you say there's pilgrimage which is a huge thing mm -hmm. um, people were people were on the move a lot more than we think um so so yeah there was a constant contact between the two and the royal court of england was speaking french until about richard ii when he was He's more into English, and that's kind of when Chaucer was was becoming famous and things like that. But yeah, there was a huge relationship between the two, and and went back for centuries. Mm. So the the literature that they were reading in France, though they, they would get it in England, England to France maybe not so much because the people in France were not speaking English as much as the people in England were speaking French, mm. and that's just again back to back to the Norman conquest and things like that. But yeah, they were, they were crossing all the time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I just think it's interesting because a, a theme, what I've noticed about the talks that I've recorded so far, there's a lot of myth debunking going on at the moment in some of these yeah. 
talks. And, uh, and I'm trying to kind of go with that theme and see some of the, the different myths that people have about these certain times in history and these people I just had a conversation this morning about Catherine Howard not being a tart. And so that was, that was fun to kind of debunk the Catherine Howard tart myth. <laughs> um, and so I'm just trying to think about some of the, when you think about the Joan of Arc period or the Hundred Years War period and the archers and all of that kind of stuff, there's this idea that the I don't know, I imagine like Monty Python and the Holy Grail and stuff like that, right? He's carrying two coconut shells and he's banging them together. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, there's some lovely filth over here. <laughs> like that it's just I know. I know. To be a medieval historian is to debunk constantly, constantly. But actually the Holy Grail is pretty good in that, you know, a bunch of those people knew a lot of a lot of stuff about the Middle Ages, especially Terry Jones. So, you know, the more you learn about the Middle Ages, the funnier that is. In fact, in Oxford, they had cups that were made with coconut shells. Kathleen Kennedy's working on medieval coconut shells. So kind of, you know, another illustration of how wide the trade networks were. They were going as far as Africa, uh, you know, routinely. So, they seriously yeah, had coconut shells? Yeah, they did. They did. I think, like, Kathleen Kennedy is working on a book about medieval coconuts right now. It's not out yet, but... If you find her on Twitter, you know, you can ask her. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, yeah, what's the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow and the coconuts and all of that? Yeah. yeah. I can answer that one for you. Okay. But. but you can talk about the coconuts. <laughs> okay. So thinking back to Christine, why is she worth knowing about now in the 21st century and studying her? What does she what does she bring to us now six hundred years later? Okay, the 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 biggest reason to read Christine is that it's putting another person back into place that we've just skipped over too much. Mm -hmm. um, people are people in the uh, medieval fields know Christine now. It's pretty she's pretty well known among medieval historians, but public at large, I think, doesn't know about her at all. Mm -hmm. And she's, she was at least as important as someone like Chaucer, you know, so we need to put the women back into history. So that's number one. Mm -hmm. The next reason is to really get a better understanding of, I think, of the Middle Ages as well. Because if people are creating this, this type of an argument that is this well-reasoned, this is something that we don't think that people in the Middle Ages could do. We tend to think that they were dumb and, you know, wandering around gathering filth, which is not true. So if you haven't read kind of an intellectual argument, something like the City of Ladies is, is easy. And it also gets at this, the way that medieval people could put together an argument based on sources that they were read. And it will really give you an idea of how well read they could be. Mm -hmm. And then another reason is that many of these issues are still around. So it's immediately familiar to, to women, especially all of these things that have been kind of thrown at us for, you know, thousands of years, you can see her dealing with them one at a time. And so it's, it's kind of hugely empowering. It's a little bit disturbing to know we're still dealing with many of the same issues, but um, you can see, you can really feel, you can feel Christine um, just, just dealing with this and having that confidence to say, no, 
I know that everyone else says this is cool, but it's really, really not. So that's kind of empowering. And then the last thing is to really get an idea of what a medieval woman, what her life could have been like. So she didn't get into her biography as much in there, but in her other works, especially Christine Vision, that one takes kind of the form of a complaint, uh, a lot like the consolation of philosophy. In fact, that's kind of what she based it off of. And she, she explains the things she's gone through in her life and uh, philosophy consoles her. But you can see what she's gone through in her life. And so you can get an idea of, of a woman kind of a, in time, in her own time, in her own words, which is a rare thing. There's lots of reasons to read Christine, all the reasons. <laughs> um, start with the city of ladies because it's just it's just a powerful book but she's yeah she should be well known to us now because she was well known at the time and uh we need to start putting women back into, into history because we've skipped over them for way too long and that was intentional i mean the fact that she wasn't translated again until the 1980s is kind of ridiculous um and even in the tudor period for stuff that was being printed the the men who were translating it were saying well this book is attributed to christine but that's because she gathered clerks around her so she's kind of like a patroness so it's not really christine but we'll say that it was <laughs> when it definitely was her like her picture is in the book so so yeah lots of reasons to read her just to just to like i say put her back in her time where she belongs yeah that's so great. I've, uh, I've learned so much about her. So where people should start with City of Ladies and, yes. and where, uh, what else is there to, what other resources, how can people learn more about her? Um, most of her stuff is kind of in academic editions, but if you just, if you just go to Amazon, for example, and put in Christine de Pizan, you have a whole bunch of things that are accessible to you and that they're paperbacks and the price is not too bad which is good so and i think this is mainly because they're trying to get more people to read christine especially as students mm -hmm. so the prices are not too bad um so you can find her easily now if you know to look for her yeah. and i think she's popping up i think in your blog post you said she's popping up in allison weir's novels as well so that's fantastic yeah 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 yeah, yeah. So tell me then, I want to give you a ch an opportunity to talk about you and your work and how people can learn more about you and connect with you and everything like that. So tell me something about you. <laughs> All right. So I write um, under the name of the Five Minute Medievalist, which is kind of accidental. I started writing a blog that was to make everyone else a medievalist in five minutes, but it stuck to me. So I write as the Five Minute Medievalist and many of my articles are on medievalist.net. And so you can see there the stuff I've written and it's mostly, it's just stuff that I've come across that I find is interesting that I think will draw people into history. And so that's, that's what I write. So I have my own website, which is daniellesabolski.com, which I hope we can put in notes because I know that my name is difficult to spell. No, I'll have a link right below this video. So, <laughs> so, so I, I'm doing a few things. I'm writing little survival guides. My first one was the five minute medievalist guide to surviving the zombie apocalypse, which I hope will help people connect now to then and really understand people back then. I'm also uh, coaching authors to help them get their history right because people want authentic history in their novels now or TV. 
so I'm doing that a little bit. And right now I'm frantically writing a book for Pen and Sword Press, which should be out next year. And it's, it's right now the working title is Medieval Europe in Fact and Fiction. Nice. So all that stuff is on the website. You can find it there. So also, because somebody, when I posted about speaking to you or that you were on the, uh, the roster, when I posted the roster, somebody said, what's a, what's a medieval coach? So can you just tell me a little bit, like if somebody is writing a historical fiction novel, for example, they can come to you to check their history? Yeah. So I've, I've built it as a coaching model because um, I feel like it's more collaborative. And I feel like a lot of people who are writing novels, they want to work through ideas instead of being told their history. Yeah. So, um, so I've made it to that, whatever you need, I can offer. So if you just need some references, I can give those to you. If you need to solve a plot point in a way that works, I can do that. If you need someone to just go through your manuscript and just make sure that, that the history works, then I'm there for that as well. So I made it a coaching model in case you're like, I have this thing, I need the plot to go here, but I don't know how to do it in a way that's authentic. So we can work that out together. And so that's why it's called a coaching model. Nice. <laughs> that's why I call it a coaching model. Yeah. yeah, no, that's great. I just wanted to give you a chance to um, explain that a bit. So yeah. yeah, for all the budding historical fiction novelists out there, check yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. It, saves, it saves you the work of having to do it yourself, right? Yeah. That's, that's the idea. For sure, for sure. Well, I have learned so much. Thank you so much for um, sharing about Christine and medieval France. And it's, it's really great to, to have this kind of background because it's, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes you want to put people in this bubble. There's like a 16th century bubble, but it was informed by what had happened in the past. And certainly, um, I just, I love the idea of Christine's work being in all of these libraries of like Louise of Savoy and all these different people just. Yeah. 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 yeah well, she was really, like I said, she was really well known and I hadn't, I didn't realize before I started kind of refreshing on Christine before I talked to you about, you know, there's this tapestry in the Tudor court and that it was in Elizabeth's wardrobe and, and that was kind of amazing to me, especially because you know, it was their inventory when Henry VIII died, so Elizabeth was a young girl, and so to have this tapestry of the City of Ladies for her is amazing, so was, thanks for giving me the chance to find that out. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, I'm gonna try to find, I guess there's probably images of that I can uh, put here. The tapestry yeah. doesn't exist anymore. Okay never been found but there's a book about it there's a book about it okay so i will hunt that down and put that in a link down here too <laughs> okay. awesome thank you so much for sharing about christine and, and medieval france with us i really have appreciate you've been really generous with your knowledge and your time and everything my pleasure thanks for having me Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.